Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today on the Strata Leadership Show, we have someone that has meant a great deal to me on, on a very personal level. And, and the person that I'm, I'm talking to today is Mo Anderson. And for those who are in the world of leadership, you've probably heard of Mo's name before. She is someone that is doing phenomenal things as a leader. And she has shown me personally just an incredible amount of kindness. Matter of fact, when my book came out uh, a year ago, I asked uh, Mo if she would be willing to write the introduction, and she so graciously did that. And it's the kind of thing you hear about Mo all the time. She's the kind of person that uses her platform to open doors for other people. Mo, we're really happy to have you on the show today. I'm thrilled to be here and very honored, Nathan, that you asked me. Well, Mo... Um, you are someone that is just an amazing source of inspiration uh, to me, and I have your bio, but if you could tell the audience just a little bit about um, who you are and what you're doing right now, uh, specifically as it relates to Keller Williams. Well, right now, um, (laughs) I'm having lots and lots of Zoom calls. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, during this pandemic, but who I am, I was born and raised in Garfield County, which is where Enid, Oklahoma is located. And I came out of the late Dust Bowl era and the late Depression era. So now you kind of know that I'm up there in age. I'm 83, and I'm still very, very, very active with our company and with the community that we live in. And the interesting thing is I've had a life of adversity, and we all know that opportunity comes out of adversity. That is If you're not filled with fear, because when you're filled with fear, you're paralyzed and you don't see the opportunity. When that fear is gone, you can recognize opportunity. So in the late 80s, we lost all of our money, all of the money we had saved because of the oil bust. And the economy reacted just as it did when the government killed it recently in the pandemic. But uh, I just have to tell you this story because this is who I am. So here we are. We've lost all of our savings. All of our partners fell during Penn Square Bank. And you know that whole story. And we had a real estate office and suddenly it was like someone turned the faucet off. It was a real depression during that period of time in the late 80s. And so I would tell all my friends, you know what, we're going to work hard and we're going to build back better than ever before. And truthfully, the first thousand times I said it, I didn't believe it. And about 1,500 times, I started believing it. And exactly 
two weeks after I said to Richard one morning, you know, we really are going to build back. This is really going to happen. Two weeks later, Gary Keller from Austin, Texas had heard about me and he found me. And of course, the rest is history. He asked me to become his partner and to help him grow his very small company of approximately seven offices across the U.S. and eventually Canada and eventually 38 other countries. And so you see, because I had a positive mindset, I was able to recognize that there might be an opportunity in that telephone call in the midst of the worst, the worst economic setback ever, including this one, really. And I want you to know I can truthfully say now the best thing that ever happened to us was to lose all of our money in the 80s because it set up a set of circumstances whereby Gary Keller found me, that lucky guy. (laughs) Mo, thank you for uh, starting off with that story. And Uh, If no one else benefits from this podcast, that two minutes right there may have just been meant for me. And so uh, thank you for starting off with that and sharing that. So you mentioned your age and you mentioned that you grew up uh, after the world had been impacted by uh, the Dust Bowl, by the Great Depression, uh, some of these challenging times that are really beyond comprehension. How do you think that that shaped your leadership today? Well, I was a tenant farmer's daughter, and on a farm, the work never, ever ends. I was the youngest of five, and I want you to know that at the age of five and six, I was milking cows, and I had duties and responsibility on that farm. And so what it did for me was it developed an incredible incredible work ethic that I would put up against anybody in the world. (laughs) Gary Keller used to say he would come to Oklahoma when I first started developing Keller Williams here and he'd say, that woman wears me out. (laughs) So uh, that proved to be one of the most valuable things I had when I began to help him build this very huge company. You know, I I don't mean to be prideful, but I've had the chance to meet an incredible number of people over the course of of my lifetime that I just was so thankful to be able to spend time with. But I can't think of anyone who changes the energy level in a room like you. I've met presidents and kings and all the different people. But when you enter a room, there's a sense of anticipation that something great might just happen uh, in that room. When you think back about being that kind of impact person, do you remember a time in your life when you realized that maybe that's how you would be able to serve, that that being a leader was um, maybe what you could do? When I was probably in the fourth grade, I came home from school one day and my mother sat me down on our decrepit, pitiful, horrible sofa. (laughs) And she said to me, I want you to join 
every committee that you can possibly join. And I said, why do you want me to do that? She said, because it will give you a chance to practice your leadership skills. And she said, I believe that God has blessed you with some leadership skills. And by the way, you know, what are parents saying to their children today? Because that one little session on the sofa impacted my life greatly. So I joined every committee. And then she told me later, she said, be the chairman of that committee because that will allow you to practice them at a higher level. And then when you graduate from high school, you'll be ahead of the pack in terms of being a leader. And so I discovered she was right. So as early as grade school, I discovered that I could do some of the things that leaders were expected to do pretty well. And that, of course, helped my confidence grow. You uh, are, are one of the most successful women entrepreneurs in the history of Oklahoma, and for that matter, in America. Do you think it would surprise your mother to find that you are in the, for her to find that you're in the spot that you're in now? I think my parents would faint and fall out of the chair (laughs) because this has grown to a level that I certainly never even considered or dreamed about. And she certainly, I don't think, dreamed dreams that big. And I think probably the most touching thing of all would be if they could have only been present when I was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, because that just blew me away. That was totally outside of my scope of thinking. And when I got the call, I said, I think you've made a mistake. (laughs) You know, no one has nominated me that I know of. (laughs) So um, I think they would be so proud and, and so humbled by it all because they work so hard to put shoes on our feet and food on the table. And uh, I respect and admired them so much because um, my dad never, ever gave up when most people would have. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like to be a parent back in those times when it wasn't just um, a work ethic issue. Sometimes you work hard and the opportunities aren't, just aren't there. And I love that you uh, have come from that soil, both figuratively and literally. You are one of the most um, generous people I, I've ever known. And you are generous to uh, people and organizations and in, in ways that uh, are, are not always known. I've, I've been told by friends of mine who know you of just little things that you've done for, for them or their families. And it wasn't even necessarily something very expensive, but it was something very thoughtful. Do you think that your generosity comes from those uh, humble beginnings? It comes from being poor and growing up in um, a certain level of poverty And I grew quite tired of that as a child. And I used to say to myself, when I grow up, 
there's one thing I'm not going to be, and that's poor. And then on the other side was my father saying, you know, hon, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. You know, once again, I asked the question to anyone who's watching this podcast, what are we saying to our children? Because what was fed into my mind was that I could be anything. So when Gary Keller asked me to come and be the CEO of his company and be his business partner, I didn't have a clue what a CEO even was because I was a public school music teacher and I loved that with all my heart, but I couldn't make any money. And when I saw this opportunity, I had been in the real estate business for several years and I grabbed onto it because I believed it would um, absolutely be a rich and wonderful opportunity. But no, this, this desire to have more money than you need so I could give it away was something that I really gleaned from poverty in childhood. But you see, I saw my dad give, give, give. He didn't have any money to give. But he gave up his time. If someone died, he was the first one there to plow their fields or do whatever they needed. And my mom was the first one there to bake the pies or prepare the meal. Because living on the farm, we grew our own food. So I had this tremendous example. And... I knew that you could give of time, you could give of talent, but you could also give of money if you had any. And many times the need was money. And then my father did something so remarkable, Um, probably 10 years old. We were in our horrible old car, our pitiful (laughs) jalopy. He took me by the Carnegie Library. And we'd been in that library before to check out books. And he came around to open the door, walked me up the steps of that beautiful old building. And he began telling me the story of Andrew Carnegie. And he briefly said he grew up in poverty. And when he became ill and he was going to die, he certainly took care of his family and his extended family. But he had $350 million left over to give away. Now, $350 million back then is equivalent to close to $3 billion today. And so what Andrew Carnegie did is he built these wonderful libraries in small towns and villages across the United States so that people like us could have books. And my father ended that lesson by saying, I always want you to respect the wealthy because they usually give back. Now, let me tell you something. He did two things for me in that moment. One, he lit a fire in my belly that it's okay to work hard and make money to make more than you need so you can give it away and do things like Andrew Carnegie. And he made it clear to me that if I ever did have wealth, 
I had an obligation to give it away. Mo, you are such an amazing storyteller. And one of the common themes you find of storytellers uh, is that they tend to be leaders and leaders tend to be storytellers. And I don't mean to embarrass you uh, with that, but um, when did you realize that when you told a story, people would listen? Well, I tried it in a speech one time because I honestly thought my story was <laughs> was so humble and so nothing. <laughs> Somebody um, asked me recently, what were your vacations when you grew up? And I said it was to go visit my aunt and uncle in Ponca City and see the pioneer woman. <laughs> and, and so my story... I felt would be so uninteresting to people because there was really not anything exciting. And so I decided one time in a speech to tell a story and it was profound because the audience, they were still, they kind of moved forward a bit on the edge of their seats and they listened to that story. And then there were tears and I knew in that moment that a story would touch the heart as well as the intellect. And to get action from a person requires both the heart and the intellect. So I realized it works. So now when I give speeches, I do quite a bit of storytelling. And for those listening, you really ought to check out moanderson.com where you can learn more about her uh, presentations and also learn about her uh, book that is a fantastic read. Um, One of the things you're credited for at Keller Williams is really setting the pace for the values and the culture. Why was that such a high priority for you to focus on those core values? I have learned about core values and standards and mission and vision in building the company, the first company I ever built. And that was, of course, here in Edmond with two wonderful other ladies that I have lost in the last year. And it just grieves me so much because it's quite unusual to have two business partners And we ended up eventually selling the company to Merrill Lynch. And then um, when they had a real estate division and then to remain close, close personal friends all these years. And it was so wonderful because they inspired me when we started our business. And I was able in their later years to do many things for them that they couldn't do themselves, Ruth Honeycutt and Jerry Brown. And so that brought me a lot of joy. And how rare is that to have business partners that remain friends until their death? Mm. Special. Well, I appreciate uh, very much the the focus that you have on people and the value of people and the work ethic and and the values that you are living out. But that's where I learned how to do that. I, um, you know, it's, it's amazing the context of um, learning those things as a young person in, in, at the intellect level, and then being able to have the relationships at the heart level to allow those to surface like that. When you think about leaders today, when you, when you look across the horizon and how many people are, are, are part of Keller Williams now? 
180,000. So when you look at those 180,000 influencers and you think about the challenge facing leaders today, what would you say are, are some of the biggest challenges leaders need to be thinking about or anticipating today? Well, I would say inside of this pandemic, for realtors, which is what I can speak to, they have had to learn in an entirely new way of doing business. And fortunately, before the pandemic hit, we had spent millions and millions of dollars of our profit building a brand new real estate technology platform. And I just thank God every night <laughs> that, that we had that about 90% built before the pandemic hit. And a lot of the agents hadn't really delved into it and had not begun to adopt it. And this pandemic, one of the blessings of it is it created an environment in which they had to adopt it to survive. (laughs) And it's pretty exciting and amazing what all they've done. They've learned to sell houses without ever seeing the house. They have learned to do an entire transaction virtually. So it's, it's pretty amazing because as I said early on, there's opportunity in every single adversity. So when I imagine you in the late 1980s, for those who don't know Oklahoma history, there had been two major things happening at the same time. One was a banking bust, which one of the large banks in the area had been giving out loans to really anybody, and it didn't work, and it collapsed. At the same time, the price of oil dropped, which in Oklahoma was a major source of of revenue. And there was a thought all throughout the city that perhaps the city as we had known it had no future, that it was referred to me one time as uh, the last person out, turn out the lights, please, kind of, kind of mindset. Now, imagining you in the late 80s, if the version of you that I'm talking to today could get in a time machine and talk to that person, the 1980s version of Mo, what advice would you have given yourself? I would have told myself to go back to college and get. <laughs> an accounting degree or a business degree. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is what I would have said. You know, head, head for the MBA. <laughs> wow. Because yeah. I'm probably the only CEO of a large company in the history of the world that had absolutely not one business class in her life. Just think, Mo, you could have been a real success if you had gone back to school. That's what I told the Yale students uh, one time, one year when I was there, I used to go there and speak to the MBA students. And uh, that was quite an experience because you can't begin to understand how intimidated I felt in front of them when I knew they had on a regular basis, the Fortune 500 people who were sophisticated and who had all this accounting financial knowledge. And here's the farm girl from Oklahoma, but I taught him a few things. <laughs> you, you know, as someone who is not a native to Oklahoma and, and moved here uh, later in life, I was stunned by just the sheer number 
of entrepreneurs that Oklahoma has produced in, in some of, uh, if not the most successful um, entrepreneurs in history, whether that be Sam Walton or, or David Green, or you can go, to, go down the line. Why do you think that Oklahoma has produced more than its fair share of entrepreneurs? Because I believe the work ethic is exceptional here. I believe the values are exceptional here. And people nearly faint and fall out of their chair because we have a home in Austin and, of course, a home in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. And when they say, which place do you like best, Mo? And I say, Oklahoma City, by far, they cannot believe it. But you see, we've been blessed with godly men who had vision for our city. And remember all of our mayors, Norick and Humphrey and Mick Cornett. And when you have men with vision leading your city, they can take a filthy, dirty ditch and turn it into a little river. And now we get to see the Olympians come and rehearse their water sports before they go to the Olympics. And we have the privilege of seeing all of the national finals of every water sport in this great state because we had men, mayors who had vision for our city. And it's so exciting to live in a place like that. Mo, I appreciate so much your attitude towards life. I know that um, being positive is a choice, that there are a number of things. You're not naive about how the world works. You're not naive about the challenges that we are facing. Where do you draw from to be able to have that positivity? Where does that come from? Well. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, when I didn't have a real handle on where things were really going and it was really scary, I was really filled with fear for about four days. Sheer fear. And when I have fear, I always lean into my faith. And um, I I believe anyone, whatever your faith may be, you could probably do this. But I had a wonderful Sunday school teacher in a rural church uh, have me memorize a verse when I was quite young. And it's a verse that says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. Well, let me tell you what, Nathan, I had a spirit of fear. So where did that sucker come from? (laughs) You know, it wasn't from God, we know, because he says he didn't, he doesn't give us that. He gives us a spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind, which is kind of the same thing as mindset. And so I began to quote that verse. And on the fifth day, I woke up and I really believed it. God, I had to say it a few times before I really believed it. And I knew I didn't have to have that spirit of fear. I was allowing my mind. And I had learned in the past from Gary Keller some truths about mindset. And my favorite one is, Your mind is just a part of you, just like your eyes are a part of you and your ears are a part of you. And because it's just a part of you and it's not the real you, 
it should be your servant and not your master. And boy, I just said, mind, <laughs> uh, we're getting rid of this and we're, I get to choose what you get to think. And so I just cleared that out real fast. I can usually do it in a few hours, but for some reason, the pandemic concerned me because I have ownership in three offices. I own a region and I am part owner of the international company. And when you get a cash call from an international company, honey, it's in the millions. It's, it's not in the thousands. And I just began to worry if I had saved enough money to get me through that. Well, I, I have and everything's fine, but there was fear at first. And so even when you are pretty good about having a positive mindset, you still have periods where you'll experience fear or anxiety and you have to work at it. I tell people when I told my friends that I would build back someday and I really didn't believe it, but I kept saying it until I did. You know, they looked at me and rolled their eyes because most people give up on the hundredth time they say it or they try to think it. And, and I learned from my daddy when we came out of the storm cellar as a child, wondering if we had a crop because of the storms and the hail. And I remember he lost his crop three years in a row and there was no such thing as crop insurance so I learned quite young the tenacity that it takes but you keep on going now what are we teaching our kids today you know are we examples of that tenacity so I just keep saying it until I finally believe it <laughs> Mo, you That's are such a, a practical way of putting it. <laughs> you are such a great uh, educator and leader. And I love the theme that you keep coming back to. Uh, there are things that you have to work at to really believe that I might have to say it a thousand, fifteen hundred times before it's something I truly believe. And I love that, uh, that, that very specific example of this is something I have to convince myself of. Um, as you're going along. And I really do appreciate that. The last question that I wanted to ask, I ask a lot of our guests and um, I, I told you I wouldn't do any gotcha questions, but if there is one, this would be it. And I don't mean to embarrass you. I just think it's uh, interesting. What, what would you describe as the best compliment that you've ever received? If you could think of a moment, and I know that you're going to hate this question, but if you could think of a moment of, I, the best compliment that meant something to you, what would that have been? Um, probably at the induction ceremony of the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Were you there, Nathan? I was not there that evening. Well, I'm going to send you a, um, a clip of it. But the person who announced me, who presented me to the Hall of Fame for induction was our CEO. And he did the most unique, clever thing. His name was John Davis, and I loved him a lot. 
And he had interviewed all these people, all, all of these various people, some in Keller Williams, some not in Keller Williams. And he said, uh, what do you think about Mo? Just a simple question like that. And he literally read what they said. And the tears just began to flow because I knew those were spontaneous responses. And I knew they weren't prepared. They weren't planned. And I was so touched. And I would say that was kind of a highlight because it was a number of people. And he used his little his little five-minute or 10-minute, whatever it was, period, reading those responses. And it was, it was very profound and touching to my soul and my heart. And for the state to recognize you when there are so many people who've done so much more than I have, I just, I just can't believe they did that. Because and, there are others who are so much more worthy. And for those who are listening in, uh, Oklahoma takes this Hall of Fame very seriously. And it's a, an unusual uh, honor in that it's not one that you can buy your way into or politicize your way into. It is really something that is uh, thought about deeply. And those who are chosen for it, uh, it is a very, very high honor. And, and no question for Oklahomans, it's at the highest uh, honor available. And so when she was referring to this, uh, this is something that in different states may have different meaning. But in this one, it's the ultimate response to someone who would not think of herself as worthy of it. And any of us who know Mo uh, would have been offended if she had not gotten it. And so I love the fact that she feels that way. And it is so obviously a great choice and, and well-deserved. But can I give you number two? Please. Uh, the second compliment, I would say, came from Senator James Langford, who's well known in Oklahoma. He was the co-sponsor of the uh, President's Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. in um, last year, a, a year ago, February. And he asked me, he asked me out of everybody in Oklahoma, he asked me, and I'm a woman, <laughs> to give the opening prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast in D.C. And I could not believe it. It scared me to death because I know there are some people who believe that, you know, women shouldn't pray in public and and I thought, oh, my goodness, should I do this or not? And, you know, I just felt like I should because he asked me. So I worked really hard on my prayer and I gave it to several people to review. And uh, I can't tell you what it meant to me to have the honor of giving a prayer in front of the president of the United States. And I just told all my little Trump haters, you know, I just said, now, honey, get over it because this is special to me. I've never met a president before in my whole life. So this was an honor for me to get to do it in front of the president and vice president Pence 
And here you have all these legislators sitting just a few feet from the head table. And to experience the secret service and all these things that this farm girl had never experienced before was really special. And then I got to be the keynote speaker at the women's conference at that same meeting. You know, it's several days long. And there were 160 countries represented there. And there were all religions in the room. And I got to give the talk and the communication with the people when it was over. Nathan, I mean, who is 82 and, you know, has that happened to him? I just, I've told you all along that the latter years of your life are absolutely the best. I wouldn't trade my 60s, 70s, and 80s for anything. When I, when I met Mo, she was uh, in her 70s and was looking at her 80s coming down the line. And she said to me, this is the first time I ever, I'd ever interacted with her. And she said to me, um, I can't wait till my 80s. She, what you said was, my 70s have been my best decade and I can't wait until my 80s. And I love to see these things. And I love the fact that the moment that you treasure uh, is a moment that you bring people together uh, to to honor them and to honor God in prayer. Uh, of all the things that um, are historic about you, the fact that I'm assuming you're the, the first Oklahoman who has ever done that, but definitely the first woman uh, Oklahoman who had ever done that. And, and I just appreciate that other people appreciate you. And I love the fact that you are so opinionated. I, I tell people, you don't have to wonder what most thinking, she will tell you. And I love the fact that you're so opinionated and you're so open to hearing other people's opinions too. And, and that humility that allows you to say what you believe and also to hear what other people believe is something that I think really makes you special. Mo, thank you for this time. And I, I really do appreciate you. I appreciate uh, what you represent by caring so deeply about people. Today, it's been an honor to have Mo Anderson on our show, the Strata Leadership Show, where we bring people together to talk about important ideas in the belief that leaders set the pace. So today, set the pace. You might have to say it a thousand times or 1,500 times, but if you say it long enough, before long, you find that it becomes uh, something that you believe and what you believe impacts what you can do. So today, set the pace. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Strata Leadership Show.